Welcome back from a holiday weekend. You know, those long plane trips and car rides are perfect times to catch up on podcasts. Well, you know, certain podcasts. Kona enjoyed the fireworks, although she was trying to figure out how to catch the lights in the sky, especially the red ones. Because I took time to finish last week's episode with the PTSD message, I wanted to finish with the unintended benefit of the little mishap on my way to the rehearsal dinner and finish that story. It was less than a week after that event that I got my first mobile phone. At the time, I think it was $35 a month and it might have been a little bit more. I did get free minutes with my plan. Can you guess how many? If you guessed 15, you would be right. Plus, texts were 15 cents each. Since I planned to only use it for emergencies, it seemed like that was all I needed. How times have changed. Then, if you wanted a special phone number, you had to pay extra, which I wasn't going to do. Or, if you found a really nice agent, they would scan ahead to see if the number you were looking for was available. Well, after about three or four calls to get that nice agent, back then, if you kept your number, every call was a long distance to your new location. And people would get new numbers when they moved. So I had to find that special agent more than once. That changed over time, as you know, as did the pricing across the board. After all, texts are free to the companies the way they transmit them. And after some hearings in front of Congress, eventually people got a pot of texts to free texts like we have today. So back to my number. The last four of my phone number has always been 8466. 8466 on the keypad spells T-H-O-M. And when I was in Texas, I had a number that had a 4 in front of 8466, so my number was 4THOM. Well, it made it easy for me to remember, at least. Living through the changes that we have taken for granted today in technology has been interesting. I've always been on the side of skepticism. I was slow to get the mobile phone, I was slow to get high-speed internet, and I was actually slow to get cable TV. But those stories come later. Years later. I was a dial-up person for way too many years. My sister is getting ready to celebrate their 30th wedding anniversary next year. So it seems that it's working out. Actually, they couldn't be more perfect together. I remember a visit to my apartment way back then. It was winter. And since my utilities were included, I do prefer a warm environment. And they came in from the outside and it was cold and they were taken back by the heat because my thermostat was set to around 80 to 82 degrees. To me, it was perfect. Apparently, it was pretty memorable because from time to time, they do bring that visit up. They settled in a nice little community in Maryland. I would drive up from time to time and usually would stay overnight because it was, well, just under an hour away. And when you drive that far... It's just too far to go back that same day. When I would tell those stories at work, many of my colleagues would look at me a little strangely, and I still don't know why. If you know my sister, she is probably the nicest person on earth. I remember visiting and we had finished dinner. She packed up some leftovers and said that she was taking them to a neighbor. I said, oh, are they ill? She looked at me and said, no, they just like it when I drop off meals. Well, if you've had a chance to have some of her creative meals, you would know why. 
She loves to cook and experiment with new recipes. My time on the air staff was one of the very few times in my career that I wasn't either working a part-time job or working on my education. So I had a bit more time on my hands. Plus, the schedule at the air staff was very different than being at a base. That was kind of nice. With Don't Ask, Don't Tell in place, I was also able to start going out a bit more to meet people as well. What did I learn in those early days? I learned that being Asian American was, let's see, how do I best describe it? It was not as welcoming as you might expect. This was both confusing to me as well as something that created some of the same feelings about myself that I had all those years ago. It's kind of hard to explain. I think that in some ways you just have to be there. About this time, as I mentioned, I started venturing out. And it was about a decade after the start of the AIDS crisis, and I knew about and was reading about this very horrible disease. I was also very cautious and worrisome. It was a very sad time for the global community and especially the gay community. I remember doing a fair amount of research, and in many ways that also kept me out from the dating scene. As I look back at this time in history and at how far this has changed over time, both in societal and political views, it's good that we've moved ahead. It's also true that we can do more. By this time, I was also pretty active and pretty astute with learning how the stock markets worked. I had been trading for a couple of years by this point and was pretty much self-taught on how to invest. There was no doubt that I would eventually retire from the Air Force, so I made a commitment to myself that my investing portfolios would primarily be for philanthropic endeavors. And that's when I started to focus my attention on how and where I could do some good. My first thinking was to give back to William & Mary. Education is a gift, and I wanted to be sure to give back to help others have opportunities like I did. That was my first commitment and became one of the youngest members of the Boyle Society, an organization that recognized those who established giving in their trusts and wills. I started with a scholarship fund named after my mentor and advisor, Dr. John Thielen. Since then, a lot more has been established across a number of institutions. In my view, it's a way to give a gift that enables others for generations to have opportunities that they might not have otherwise had. I've always encouraged people to give back to their alma maters. It doesn't matter how much you give. It matters that you consider how valuable your education and that experience was, and that others enabled that experience. I want to share one example of a colleague that graduated what I did from William & Mary. And let's be realistic. Those who serve in the military, and even more so, educators, aren't in a position to give a lot to philanthropic endeavors as much as they may want to. My colleague came up with an ingenious idea. William & Mary was founded in 1693. So she decided that she would give $16.93 a month. Then, as she could, she would find another way to build off 1693. I've shared that story with many along the way, showing, again, it's not the amount as much as giving to enable the next generation of students to have a chance at what you were gifted from the school. So find a way to be creative with your alma mater. 
there are a couple of stories that I want to share that come out um, a little bit out of place in terms of time. And we can chalk that up to my notes being less than organized as I'd like. Both of these are during my first year on the air staff. And that was one of the most exciting, at least for me, aspects on being at the Pentagon. And it was not only one of the most famous buildings in the world, I got to meet people that I would never have met. The first story was during my work with base closures. One of the members of Congress, and I don't remember his name, was seeking more information on a base that was closing in his district. Along with my boss, we went to speak with him on the issues he was concerned about. In his office, he had a memento from the name of the base in Northern California that had been closed for decades. In fact, I had been to that base because I knew someone who was stationed there. By chance, the base housing for another open base was still in operation on that particular base. And it had closed so long ago that the emblems on the buildings were from the early days of the Air Force. The issue he was seeking information on was that we were planning to maintain a very small part of the base for a period of time beyond the closure. Now, you know me already. I sometimes get out in front of my skis and sometimes at the wrong time. Oh, well, that is from Hamilton Air Base. And that closed quite a long time ago. Did you know that the base housing is still in operation today? He looked at me and said, you're right. How do you know? I mentioned that I had been there, and he said, well, that is on our list of things that we still do need to clean up. I think my boss, that I might have been out of line, and maybe I was, yet it seemed at the time that this very short conversation quickly closed out the concerns he had because we were just keeping a very small facility open beyond the closure, and Hamilton was, in ways, a precedent, and we weren't going to keep it open for decades. The next story is one that I will never forget. When we were implementing my category A, B, and C metrics from Air Combat Command across the entire Air Force, since I was a project officer, my name was on the staff summary sheet that is sent up for approval, and this was going all the way up to the chief of staff of the Air Force. When this occurs, there are a zillion, well, maybe not quite a zillion, but there are many staffers who make comments along the way for changes for their particular principle before it can go on to the next one. Since this was going to the chief of staff, it had to go through at least a half dozen other offices, and so the process was lengthy and a little frustrating. One of the executive officers for the vice chief of staff, who was General Carnes at the time, sent back the paperwork with a change. The change that she wanted actually changed the data to what was factually inaccurate. And sometimes that happens. I sent it back with a note that explained why the change was not made and the other small changes were. She called me over to the office. This was the first and the only time that I got to go to the top of the Air Force leaders' suite. And it was pretty cool, although I had to go with a flak vest. She was a lieutenant colonel, and some of the veterans who listen to the podcast know that some of these folks in these positions think that they wear the rank of their principal. They don't. I'm trying to make my case, and this is another example where being a captain was a challenge. She was insisting that the change be made and threatened to call my principal. 
In my mind, I already knew that they supported the change. Did she really think that I was going to send up a note without them knowing what I was sending to the second highest general in the Air Force? General Carnes came out from his office because I sensed he heard the disagreement and was curious to see what was going on. By now, you know that my voice does tend to carry. He saw me, and when a four-star general sees a captain in their area, which is pretty infrequent, they're always going to reach out with some pleasantries. And he said, how are you doing, captain? Here I go. I said, well, general, not too well. Oh, why? We're sending up this package on the congressional MWR categories and the Air Force plan to create metrics across the major commands. The lieutenant colonel sent back a change, and unfortunately, the change will make the information factually inaccurate. She was pissed. In fact, if looks could kill, I would not be here today telling the story. Note that I also said the lieutenant colonel, because in this setting, it would have been proper for me just to say the colonel. Anyway, he looked a little amused. Since I had raised the issue, now remember, he hasn't even seen or read the package. He, she said, General, what would you like me to do with the package? He turned around with a smile, looking straight at me and said, Do what's right. Oh well, Captain One, Lieutenant Colonel, Zero. General Carnes was a remarkable leader with a memory that was shown another time. Then I also had another chance to make a difference. I was in a classified briefing to General Carnes. I was sitting way in the back because I was just there as a representative for the directorate and others were briefing him. The briefer was making a presentation and General Carnes stopped him. He said, go back three slides. Now there was a lot of data on this slide. He said, I think you briefed me last time that XYZ was ABC, didn't you? The briefer was unfamiliar and looked toward his principal, who was a general officer, who got up and had to explain which was correct. Oh, by the way, it was the old data. After I left the briefing, I sent an email up to the command section that I had noticed that one of the slides wasn't properly marked. I'm pretty observant, and while I probably just should have raised my hand, I figured that maybe that wasn't the right time to do that. See? A captain can learn. In 1993, we had a big change to the officer uniforms and promotion files. As a quick background, up to this point, officers were required to have a professional photo taken at some point just ahead of a promotion board, so it's current. This was a head and shoulder shot, and I'm posting one of mine in the episode photos. It was basically from the name tag and awards and decorations up. The rationale, official rationale, was that this was for dress and appearance purposes. Funny, it was only a headshot. Well, more on that in a bit. General McPeak, the chief of staff that I met at that promotion party with General Lisey, made a major, major change to the uniform and affected officers especially the most because we went from wearing our rank on our shoulders on the service uniform to having our rank on our sleeves, like you've seen on naval officers. It was quite the hubbub. People were upset. 
those that had to get their photo taken had to, A, one, go and buy a new uniform, and two, take a new picture because one, the picture had to be taken with one arm in front of you so that your rank was visible. It was all kind of silly. I don't have a photo of me on, in this uniform, and on a web search, the only one I found was one of General McPeak wearing his. Oh well, I did find a stock photo of this uniform, and we'll post that. One other change was how you wear the ribbons on this new uniform. For example, his photo has few ribbons on the uniform. That's when we went to another new rule. You could display some, all, or none of your ribbons on the service dress uniform and other uniforms. High-ranking officers tended to do so with the option that they would just display the top three awards. And there was generally an eye roll with many officers that I knew. And the reason most general officers and senior leaders did this was because General McPeak did it. Anyway, this uniform was, well, if you haven't guessed it by now, discontinued just over a year after it was instituted. We went back to the old uniform. Along with this, so did the photo shortly thereafter. So the photo, remember, was for dress and appearance? It wasn't for gender or race, even though the stats for both of these were closely watched after each promotion board. As an Asian American, I knew this. I knew why they had a photo. Anyway, the Air Force official position, again, was dress and appearance. The photo eventually went away because the reason, official reason, was it was cost prohibitive. I got a rep, which is a computer-generated document that you occasionally have to review for accuracy just before a board. It had basic information about your service record. As soon as the photo was taken out of the official records, I happened to get one of these documents. I compared an old rep with the new one, line by line, just to check my data. And guess what? There was a new line on the rep at the very bottom. And I'm guessing you all have guessed what that new line said. Because if you guessed race and gender, you would be correct. So while this isn't an affidavit, a reasonable person would, oh well, never mind, I'll leave that up to you. Since our offices were in Crystal City and we weren't in the official building, we had no access to the fitness programs in the Pentagon. One of the naval officers that was maybe two blocks away at most from our offices contracted with a company to provide a fitness center for their personnel, and we partnered with them for our military people. It was great. We could walk under the underground passageway and be there just a few minutes. Included were personal trainers on a first-come, first-served basis. This was the first time I had a chance to work with a personal trainer, and it was pretty amazing. He was very good. I'm not really super athletic, and while I am in what I would say pretty good shape, I also didn't spend a lot of time in the gym. So this was a good experience to keep me in better shape. I will say that my personal trainer was pretty good because I saw improvement in my body. He also had a great sense of humor and would make fun of me, let's say lack of technique, 
Well, all this made working out a lot more fun. Well, after the workout, I would have much rather taken a nap. I did have to go back to work. With the responsibility of education and training across the spectrum of the services personnel, including enlisted military officers, non-appropriated fund and appropriated fund employees, the breadth was substantial. And there wasn't a clear progression progress process rather for civilians. And that was a task that seemed more daunting than anything I've ever done. The first order of business was to create a model that everyone could buy into. And that was not going to be an easy task either. While I brought some credibility to the process, we were impacting employees in every area of the staff. And I encountered from, I don't have time right now for that, to our employees don't need to be part of the process, it was not going to go that smoothly. Being a mere captain didn't help, and so what I had to do was, one, get as much firepower behind me as I could, and that wasn't too difficult, and two, create a body that would have the responsibility to be part of the approval process consisting of much more senior people. My boss also liked this idea because it provided cover for not only me, but kind of some cover for him. The other big missing piece was there was no regulation to cover the education and services training, especially for the civilian workforce. All of this would take time, a lot of time. And I had to break this project into some manageable pieces. And it would be a lot of pieces. And I'm not going to go too much into detail on the whole process. You would be bored to tears. I'm going to share next week on some lessons learned from this process and how it evolved because I do think it has some value. Because as you know, one of my objectives of my podcast is to provide lessons in leadership that I have learned throughout my career. I'm also going to share some really good news on the personal front. Oh, actually, two pieces of good news, actually great news, and how time flies. Do I really have to think about moving again already? It seemed like I just got here. Thanks for listening and growing the podcast. Please do keep sharing. We are up to 35 countries and 418 cities. Still, a couple of states to go. I've also noticed another very interesting fact. Hope you are too. The third highest country of listeners behind the United States and Australia is Saudi Arabia. Canada has also leaped ahead of Japan. Surprisingly, the Republic of Korea is seventh. I think I might have mentioned this before. Australia has always been second in the number of listeners. And that's because, or partly because, Australia has the highest per capita listeners of podcasts in the world. Anyway, Kona sends a tail wag. I hope you had a great 4th of July and have a great week.